Turn with me, if you will, uh, back to Romans chapter 5, and let's continue our study. This is a section that is oh so important. Um, we we kind of dabbled with verse 12. We're going to dabble a little bit more with it tonight and kind of finish up verse 12, but it introduces a section of Scripture that is highly theological. It is, um, is a section that talks about several things, a, a whole bunch of terms that perhaps you've never heard before. I mean, uh, we, I, I'll try to not confuse you. Federal headship, for instance, is a key uh, issue in, in justification by faith, but uh, this is where it's found in this little section of Scripture, verses 12 through 19. And all I'm going to read for you tonight is verse 12. And, and that's what we're going to concentrate on. Finish that up and then come back and, and start looking at the parenthesis um, of verse, beginning of verse 13 next week, Lord willing, if it doesn't snow. Uh, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. I said to you uh, last or two weeks ago, that there are two grand universals. Uh, the first universal being the, um, uh, the universality of sin. That is, that we've never found a perfect man yet. Number two, that the universality of death. Um, now, the question now becomes, how do you explain the universality of sin, the universality of death? There are some options. Um, uh, the uh, evolutionary approach that it says that we just haven't uh, evolved high enough. But, but the point is, the scriptures uh, describe those um, an, or give explanation to the universality of sin and the universality of death. And it's in this section of Scripture. You will notice, through one man, sin entered the world. Now, of course, that is a reference to um, Adam and the fall. And as a result of that historic event, an, an historical event, death through sin, that is, sin entered, and because sin entered, death entered through that sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the consummate summation of the doctrine known as original sin. Most, um, I don't know of anybody that doesn't believe in original sin. Uh, even Roman Catholicism uh, buys into original sin. They have some tr uh, strange twists that they place on it. But this is a statement of the issue of original sin. G.K. Chesterton once observed that the doctrine of original sin is the one philosophy empirically validated by 3,500 years of human history. Do you, do you understand what he's saying? It's, it's pretty comical almost. Here's a, here's a doctrine that is empirically validated. Look at history and you will find that every man... Uh, we've never found anybody that's lived perfectly, and therefore, over 3,500 years of human history, uh, it has been demonstrated empirically that all sinned, that originals that were born into the world with this taint that is, uh, that is on us. And you may remember that I closed out last, uh, or two weeks ago, by reading this thing from the Minnesota Crime Commission um, about... Um, uh, their observation about the importance of parenting and the role of parenting. I want to read it to you one more time, and then because i got something else I want to read you. Um, the Minnesota Crime Commission, by no means a, a Christian agency, uh, summarized uh, original sin in these words. Every baby starts life as a little savage. Sorry. Um, he is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these ones, and he sees with, re seethes, 
with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children are not, are not just certain children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, and a rapist. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Minnesota Crime Commission did not know that what they were doing is giving definition to the doctrine of original sin, but that's what they're doing. They're saying every child is born into this world ill-prepared to leave it because of this, uh, this statement made here in verse 12 that through Adam, sin infected the race. As a representative head, sin spread to all men through our representative that being Adam. And what's going to be done in this passage is Paul is going to compare what happened in Adam, that is, through him, sin spread to all men. And then he's going to say, now, in the same way, through Christ, righteousness spread to those who believe. That righteousness was gained through our representative head, Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. There's a contrast and a comparison. I... I um, I'm not sure anybody's interested in this. I, I, I hope I don't, I'm not wasting your time. But I want to read you something that uh, maybe some of you have already... It, it came via my email, and um, I know some of you... Bob Wood certainly hasn't read it because he doesn't have a computer. Um, and, <laughs> uh, but some of, others of you, you know, don't have a computer either, and I certainly don't want to speak you know, poorly of you like I just did of Bob. Um, but in, in fact, if you're, if you're a popular person, you've already read this, because I'm sure somebody emailed you this thing. And uh, if you're not popular, uh, then let me read it to you. Uh, <clears throat> it has to do with the American Taliban, you know, who that ma young man is, who is uh, now on trial. Did y'all read this? Is everybody read it? I mean, because if I'm boring you... I <laughs> well, I knew you were, I mean, but I, <laughs> I thought maybe it was a couple. Uh, but anyway... Um, this, was, this appeared in the Boston, yeah, the Boston Globe uh, on December the 13th about this man, uh, John Walker. And it's fairly long, but it's not real long. It's very interesting, I think, concerning the role of parenting because, no, the role of parenting that exists because of the doctrine of original sin. Listen to this. It isn't the case that the parents of John Walker, the Marin County child of privilege, turned Taliban terrorist, never drew the line with their son. True, they didn't do so when he was 14, and his consuming passion was collecting hip-hop CDs with especially nasty lyrics. And true, they didn't put their foot down when he announced at 16 that he was going to drop out of Tamsical High School, the elite alternative school where students determined their own course of study and only saw a teacher once a week. And granted, they didn't interfere when he abruptly decided to become a Muslim after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, grew a beard, and took to wearing long white robes and an oversized skull cap. On the contrary, his father was proud of John for pursuing an alternative course, and his mother told friends that it was good for a child to find a passion. Nor did they object when he began spending more and more time in a local mosque and set about trying to memorize the Koran. Nor when he asked his parents to pay his way to Yemen so he could learn to speak pure Arabic. Nor when they learned that his new circle of friends included gunmen who had been to Chechnya to fight the Russians. Nor when he headed to Pakistan to join Madrasha in a region known to be a stronghold of Islamic extremists. His parents also didn't balk when he went to fight in Afghanistan, but that at least they didn't know about. Walker hadn't told them. Perhaps by that point he had learned uh, to take their consent for granted. 
Only once, it seems, did Frank Lind and Marilyn Walker actually deny their son something he wanted. When he first adopted Islam and took the name um, Suleiman, they refused to use it and insisted on calling him John. After all, he had been named for one of the giants of our time, John Lennon. Their refusal must have amazed him. For as long as he could remember, his oh-so-progressive parents had answered yes to every whim, indulged his every fancy, permitted even, permitted even praised his every passion. The only thing they insisted on was that nothing be insisted on. Nothing. In his life, uh, nothing in his life was important enough for them to make an issue of, not his schooling, not his religion, not his appearance, not even whether he stayed in America or moved while still a minor, to a benighted third-world oligarchy halfway around the world. Nothing except, of course, their right to call him by the name of their favorite beetle. Devout practitioners of the self-obsessed non-judgmentalism for which the Bay Area is renowned, Lind and Walker appear to never have rebuked their son or criticized his choices. In their world, there was no absolutes, no fixed truths, no mandatory behavior, no thou shalt not. If they had one conviction, it was that all convictions are worthy, that nothing is intolerable except intolerance. Not, but even in Marin County, there are times when children need to hear no and don't. They need to know that there are limits they must respect and expectations they must live up to. If they cannot find those limits and expectations at home, they are apt to look for them elsewhere. Newsweek calls it truly perplexing that Walker, who grew up in possibly the most liberal, tolerant place in America, was drawn to the most illiberal, intolerant sect in Islam. There is nothing perplexing about it. He craves standards and discipline. Mom and Dad didn't offer any. The Taliban did. Even when it was clear that their son was sinking into Islamic fanaticism, they wouldn't pull back on the reins. When Osama bin Laden's terrorists bombed the USS Cole and killed 17 American servicemen, Walker emailed his father that the attack had been justified since by docking the ship in Yemen, the United States had committed an act of war. Lynn now says that the message raised my concerns, but that didn't stop him from wiring Walker another $1,200. After all, says Dad, my days of molding him were over. It isn't clear that they ever began. It undoubtedly came as a jolt to his parents when Walker turned up at the fortress near Mazar-e-Sharif, support a sporting an AK-47, and calling himself Abdul Hamid. But the revelation that their son had enlisted the Al-Qaeda, had enlisted in the Al-Qaeda and supported the September 11th attacks, brought no words of reproach or self-reproach to their lips. Walker deserved a little kick in the butt. But uh, keeping them in the dark about his, for keeping them in the dark about his plans, his father said, but otherwise, they just wanted to give him a big hug. His mother, meanwhile, was quite sure that if he got involved with the Taliban, he must have been brainwashed. When you're young and impressionable, it's easy to be led by charismatic people, she said. Yes, it is. And it's a pity that they didn't occur, that that didn't occur to her sooner. If she and Lynn had been less concerned with flaunting their open-mindedness, and more concerned with developing their son's moral judgment, he wouldn't be where he is today. Walker is responsible for his own behavior, and he will pay the price the law requires. But his road to treason and jihad didn't begin in Afghanistan. It began in Marin County with parents who never said no. Now, guys, uh, th that's long, and I, I think captivating. But it's, it's just an illustration of the, the requirements that are incumbent upon parents because something exists theologically. There's nothing more practical than theology, ladies and gentlemen. And the doctrine of original sin tells us foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod will drive it. And that's just one application of that doctrine. 
but it also tells us something grand and glorious about the gospel itself, and that's what we want to get to. But uh, our text says that sin entered. The word entered uh, could more aptly be translated invaded because, ladies and gentlemen, sin is an alien. It was never intended to be a part of our experience, but here it is. Once the, the, when the, when the world did not contain sin or knew no sin, there came this invader. It's an alien. And um, as I said earlier, Paul makes allusion to that historic event called the fall, and that is the only way, ladies and gentlemen, to adequately explain the universality of sin is the way that Paul does it here. Through one man, sin entered. And we're told uh, that it spread to all men. And death through sin, he goes on, uh, which explains the universality of death. Death is the result, my friends, of the invasion. Um, it, is, uh, it is something that was also not supposed to be, folks. Uh, uh, it is, death is penal. For the wages of sin is death, says the Scriptures. Had Adam not sinned, he would have not died because death is the penal payment made because of the entrance of sin. And then um, death spread to all men. We are um, born to die. The universality of death uh, is the result and the fact that all sinned in our representative head. And this, this prepositional phrase, ladies and gentlemen, through one man is key for the, the understanding of the rest of this section. Through one... How did sin enter? It entered through one man. And then what Paul's going to do? He's going to contrast. How did righteousness enter? Through one man. <clears throat> In fact, ladies and gentlemen, this... Um, this word one is used 12 times from in verses 12 to 19. One, 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 one. Uh, that's what he's trying to do. Adam is the cause of sin just as Christ is the cause of righteousness. Through one man sinned and through one man righteousness entered. That's going to be the theme of this section. Now, but there's one thing that I want to do and really use it as our closing um, uh, and before we get to verse 13, because I want to tell you an experience that I had one time and, 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 and just tell you, um, and, and I hope that you'll get a panoramic view of something that perhaps you've never considered before. Uh, hopefully, if, if not, if you've heard this before, please forgive me for boring you. Um, you know, I, in the new members class, I always stand up in front of the new members class and I, um, I, I do the first hour, which is really a definition of the gospel. You may remember that if you went to the numerous class. And, and I always start out the same way. I've just about got that thing memorized now. I've done it so often. And, and, um, uh, and I stand up and I say something like this. I say, uh, standing in front of you tonight, I know you don't realize it, is a TV star. And uh, the TV star I'm alluding to is, of course, myself. Uh, because uh, in uh, my previous job, my boss asked me to represent him on a television show. And y'all look at me like you never heard this before. I, I guess I was wasting my breath in the new members class, wasn't I? What? I never heard this story before. Uh, probably all my stories you've already heard three or four times before. But anyway, um, I went down to WREG, uh, you know, down there on the river next to the uh, um, uh, Universal Unitarian Church, um, and appeared on a TV show uh, in, known as What is Your Faith? 
Now, I, if I'm not mistaken, Jeff Hedgepeth is the only person that ever has raised his hand to say that, yes, he indeed had seen an episode of What Is Your Face. Jeff Hedgepeth and I can never be friends because he watched me. I, he, I, I'm embarrassed to look at him in the face because uh, I was indeed uh, on that show. Uh, what it, does anybody else, did anybody else ever see it? Oh, my friend. Oh, my, oh my goodness. I, may I apologize to you as well? Um, I, I mean, maybe you saw it once? Oh, well, was, was I on there at that time? Oh, oh my gosh. Well, uh, What Is Your Faith was a, they showed it at like 5.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings, I think. And um, I wish it had been 3.30 a.m. Because it was a panel of the religious experts of the community. Uh, who had gathered, and they had this little round, uh, uh, this semicircled uh, um, thing that we sat behind, and there was a Jewish priest, and there was a Kojic pastor, and there was a United Methodist, and there was a uh, Assembly of God, and there was a Church of Christ, and there was a Roman Catholic, and there was a uh, First Assembly, and there was like nine of us, I think, a Southern Baptist, I remember, um, seven, eight, nine of us on this panel, and we were considered the religious experts of the community. And the religious experts of the community were to field questions that came in through the viewing audience, all six of them. And I think you're the six. Shame on you. But, but anyway, <coughs> I've, I've told this jokingly that, um, you know, there were very few, very few decent discussions that ever uh, took place. One of the questions that I recall that was so absolutely nonsensical and absurd was the question, why do we call children kids? That was sent in by, I don't, I mean, is, and, and I was supposed to throw my shoulders back and say, well, the Bible says the reason that we did it, and I think, leave me out of this. You know, uh, I don't even, in fact, I know you don't believe me, but I did not open my mouth very much. <laughs> uh, you know, you, uh, <laughs> didn't I go way back? Um, uh, you know, you've seen the video about the one that I did enter about, do you have to be a member of a church to go to heaven? You remember that one? At least I hope you do. I mean, that's a classic. You have to be a member of a church to go to heaven. And, and there, were, there were three members on that panel that said, absolutely you do have to be a member of, the, uh, of a church to go to heaven. Um, one of them teaches at a seminary in, in this city and pastors a fairly large congregation. And he said, if you're not a member of a church, you can't go to heaven. You people are about to join up, folks. Um, anyway, uh, that, was one of the, that was one of the discussions I got into. But let me tell you another one I got into. It was over this text. And, and now, guys, um, I have been somewhat, uh, I, I mean, I, um, how do I say this? I am convicted that I never hold anybody who is a genuine brother up to, up before you in such a way that they are scorned. I don't think that's the purpose of my teaching nor the pulpit, etc., I don't mean to ever make light of someone who is a genuine brother with whom we have a valid disagreement. But this is different. And I'll tell you why it's different, because it's unbelief. And so I have to tell you who said this. I have to tell you. And I'm not saying that all Roman Catholicism is unbelief, but this was a Roman Catholic priest that said this. And he spoke to the viewing audience of all six, and he told them something that is so blasted damaging to everything that you and I believe. And it had to do with Adam. And maybe you've heard this before. This position that the Hebrew word 
for Adam is indeed Adam. I mean, you know, uh, Aleph, uh, Dalet, uh, Mim. Um, and it's, and, and in fact, uh, Eve's name is Adamah. It's just a, kind of a little suffix that's placed on the end of Adam's name. But um, that Adam is a word that should be properly translated mankind. And that what you saw in the Garden of Eden was you certainly in a sophisticated age in which we live do not expect us to believe, do you, that a serpent talked. Have you ever had a conversation with a snake? Besides your next door neighbor? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, snakes don't talk. Snakes talk in Aesop's fables. Animals, blues, and the rest of his friends, they don't talk except on cartoons. And so you must realize that what you have in Genesis 3 is not the record of an historical event because the name Adam simply means mankind. And what you have there is a grand and glorious piece of symbolic truth. Symbolic truth such that messages of great import are being conveyed. And um, you should never be so unsophisticated and untutored as to somehow believe that Adam was a real man. Ladies and gentlemen, that was said by a Roman Catholic priest. Not exactly the way I said it, but it, the whole position, the whole position, I never will forget him, he was sitting right next to me. <clears throat> and and I, I, I was coming through my skin. But you know, how do you have a fight on television when you're representing somebody that you are an employee? <clears throat> and, and you know, you're trying to, you know, restrain yourself and say something nice. But ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing to say to that other than that's a damnable lie. And let me show you one reason why. Because in the text before us tonight, verses 12 through 19, do you know what's going to happen in verses 12 through 19? Adam is going to be compared and contrasted with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if Adam is nothing more than a mythical creature, someone who's supposed to have symbolic value, then you must therefore then conclude that Jesus is too. That the comparison of what we say is historic in Jesus is being compared to something that is non-historic in Adam. So you have the non-historic and the symbolic, and all that you have in the work of Jesus is something that's nice and symbolic, and hopefully will give you warm fuzzies on Sunday mornings when you head to church of your choice. Ladies and gentlemen, that is heresy. It is heresy in its core. But, and, and, and I, I, I mean, I said, my reply to this Roman Catholic priest, who I could tell his name, uh, he's a good Irish boy, um, I said, according to Romans 5, if you turn Adam into a mythical creature, then he who is being compared, compared and contrasted with Christ, he too must be a mythical creature. Well, I mean, nobody ever dreamed about the, the, the possibility of anything like that happening. And, uh, um, and, and very frankly, it was, mm, okay, thanks, and let's move on. 
and, and not and much more than that was said. But here's a man who is standing before his congregation saying that Adam's not a story. He's not a creature. He's a symbol. And that what you have in, the, uh, in Genesis 3 is nothing to be read as, uh, with historic value. It's just, it's communicating nice little uh, hopeful truisms that upon which you can build and frame your life. Now, guys, one of the reasons gosh, that I bring this up is because you can never afford to play fast and loose with the Scriptures. Now, let me give you another example. I want to give you several examples of the way this kind of fast and loose playing with the Scriptures can have enormous consequences. For instance, some of you here are not at all convinced that evolution is not true. Some of you here lean towards an evolutionary scheme of creation. Well, may I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I understand that you have been taught that in ninth grade biology. I understand that everybody at the university told you it was true. But I want, you to, I want to tell you somebody who does not believe in creation, in, in uh, evolution. His name is Jesus. Would you like to see that? Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19? Um, verses, begin to get verse 4. And he answered and said to them, Now, then, I don't know about your Bibles, but the next word that I have is red. Which I hate red letter Bibles. I mean, I got one, but, um, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus' words are no more inspired than the other words that Paul wrote in black. The words that Paul in, uh, 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 are inscripturated in here are just as binding as what... But for some people, the fact when you find them in red, it seems to have more clout. So for you, they're in red. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So tell me this, what did Jesus believe about the origin of Adam and Eve? Keep reading. I mean, he gives, um, he verifies the whole chapter. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's referring to the issue of divorce here. But he begins by saying, "Have you not read that in the beginning it was told, it was said that he made Adam and Eve?" Now, ladies and gentlemen, I say to you, you who are leaning towards an evolutionary scheme of the uh, origin of man, I'm telling you, you are in contradiction or you're in an argument with Jesus because he didn't believe like that. So I would recommend for you that you try to find some way to get around your evolutionary thoughts because Jesus gives validity to the creation of Adam and Eve by God. Just another dangerous thing to do, ladies and gentlemen, when you play fast and loose with the Scriptures. Um, Jonah. You know, Jonah didn't get swallowed by a whale. Ah, that's nonsense. I mean, had he gotten swallowed by a whale, he would have been destroyed in minutes by gastric juices. It's a horrible way to go. Um, but... You know, it's, it's just, again, it's, a, it's one of those, um, uh, oh, what do they call them? Um, oh, uh, ancient myths 
that got carried over, and um, and you can't you can't trust uh, that kind of foolishness. Well, I'd like to ask you to look with me um, at Matthew chapter twelve. Matthew chapter twelve, verse. Uh, um, 39, and he answered and said to them, another red word here coming up, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given, it to it, given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. My, my, my. Jesus believed that Jonah really was three days in the belly of a fish. Well, if you don't believe that, then I say to you, you're in disagreement with the Lord of glory. Um, more examples? I, you know, I can, I can go on like this all night. The virgin birth. Oh, come on. We're, we know how babies are made. We're not that unsophisticated in here, are we? Does everybody understand all that? See me later if you need some help. We don't believe in a virgin birth. In fact, we understand that, you know, that some things happen. But, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't believe in a virgin birth, then Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following are going to devastate your view of the Messiah. Because if sin entered and spread to all men, then Jesus was tainted with sin. If you don't believe in a virgin birth, Give up on the virgin birth, ladies and gentlemen. And I say to you, don't come back here next week. Burn your Bibles. You don't need to be here. Because if Jesus was not born of a virgin, this whole thing about redemption is utter foolishness. Uh, miracles of any kind. You know, I had um, 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 my mother, who I think changed her views um, before she died, I do believe very definitively that my mother was a Christian, but she was raised in another particular denomination. And she, uh, right after Susie and I became Christians, um, uh, they came down. I told you this story before, I think. They came down to visit us, and we were living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And, and we had a little two-bedroom apartment, and they were going to stay for four or five days or something with us. And, and so I, not my wife, she's much too kind, but uh, I began, I proceeded to save my parents from the condemnation to come. And um, uh, the last two days of their visit, my mother spent it in the back bedroom and wouldn't go out of the bedroom. <laughs> oh, that was bad. Uh, anyway, um, uh, that's uh, uh, something I regret. But, but anyway, my, my mother told us that her faith was so large that she didn't need to believe in miracles. And, and it, was not a, it was not necessary to believe in the miracles as recorded uh, in the Scriptures to have uh, genuine New Testament faith. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't afford to have that position. Very frankly, the incarnation is the grandest and gloriousest uh, miracle of them all. In fact, if you believe in the incarnation, that is, that God became flesh, miracles thus become predictable. All I'm trying to warn you against, ladies and gentlemen, is playing fast and loose with the Scriptures. It is either all true, or it, it is none of it's true. And the, the, the ideas about 
uh, Isaiah didn't write Isaiah. Ladies and gentlemen, I was trained in these things. Uh, there was, uh, there's, a, there's Isaiah and then there's Deutero-Isaiah. You know how Deutero-Isaiah is, don't you? Well, that's the middle portion because there's three people who wrote Isaiah. And the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch was not really written by Moses. The Pentateuch was written by what they call redactors. And redactors took their scissors and their Elmer's glue and they cut portions out of uh, religious documents and they pieced it all together and patched works, quilt and put the thing together and gave it to you. And you fools believe it. Ladies and gentlemen, any of that, any of that brings the whole house of cards tumbling in. Now, by the way, please don't, let, please don't hear me saying that I think Christianity is the house of cards. I think it's just the opposite. But just like I said Sunday, ladies and gentlemen, why was it that those who took the place of Judas had to have witnessed the baptism through the resurrection? It was because they had to be witnesses of historic events, historical events, things that really took place. Gang, if any of this didn't take place as recorded, we all got problems. And we ought to save our money and throw it at the United Way. Because a whole lot better work will be done there than us being so duped into believing that Adam, or at least his wife, really talked to a snake. If she didn't talk to a snake, ladies and gentlemen, for us, all hope is gone. Don't do that. Don't play fast and loose with this book. If God created the heavens and the earth, getting a book into my hand that was reliable was a piece of cake. And I think that's what you got. We'll look at verse 13 next week. Let's quit. Our Father, I, I thank you for the word. I, it is, it is the, the pillar and the ground of all that we believe. It is that which re contains for us the record of apostolic teaching, the thing on which we build our hope of forgiveness and life eternal. Father, um, I pray that you will so anoint the men who, and women who handle this book in this church that no one would ever walk away thinking that there was one smidgen of doubt in our minds that what we were doing was explaining the very mind of God as delivered unto us as black words on a white page. Might your people come to it Surrender unto it, be changed by it, and determined to go live, live out what we've learned and what we've been taught and what we've been commanded. Thank you for people who love this book. Thank you that I get the privilege of pastoring a church where people are interested in knowing not what I've got to say, but what you've got to say. Make me faithful to that, Lord Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Good night. See you next week.